Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me on the Fox Sports app and at foxsports.com. You can also follow me on X, the former Twitter, Instagram, and threads, at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places, but there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles, perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA, and that is here. I'll just come out, come right out and say it. I'm worried about the state of basketball in the United States. There seems to be this ongoing belief that we play the game at as high of a level or maybe even higher as we ever had. And while we remain the nation to beat when it comes to international play, there are all sorts of signs that the margin between us and the rest of the world has narrowed significantly. And that, when you think about it, in itself is extraordinary and should be a warning flag, something that captures our attention. We are home to the most competitive, well-funded, and well-compensated professional basketball league in the world. If you live in this country and you play the sport, you have the ability to watch every single minute of every single NBA game. We have a population of 332 million people, which is more than Spain, France, Germany, Greece, Lithuania, and Serbia combined. I mention those countries specifically because they are top basketball nations as well. Our facilities are so first class that Olympians in just about every sport from around the world come here to train. We have a diversity of geography and climate that offers everything if you're an athlete. And yet, the best players in that most competitive, well-funded, and well-compensated professional basketball league are foreigners. Doesn't that sound like something is off? And if you want to argue with me, Nikola Jokic, Luka Doncic, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Those are the players that are vying. Uh, Shea Gilgis-Alexander from Canada. Those are the players that are vying for MVP. We don't have, we bring up Jason Tatum. Draymond Green can bring up Jason Tatum. He's not got, he doesn't have a legitimate chance of winning the award. Jalen Brunson 
is in the conversation, doesn't have a legitimate chance of winning the award. Doesn't that sound like a reason to be concerned about the state of the game? How it's being taught here? How it's being played here? If you appreciate and take pride in our status as a basketball nation, yes, LeBron James, still amazing. Stephen Curry, still amazing. We're talking about mid-30s and up players. Where's the next legion of great American players? How is it that every single legitimate candidate for the NBA Most Valuable Player Award was born and developed elsewhere? I'm going to get philosophical, philosophical here for a minute. In order for you all to understand where I'm coming from and where I'm going in this episode and why this subject means so much to me, or at least why I feel I have particular insight. We all, I believe, are shaped by our histories, our backgrounds, and our personal experiences. We can become more learned. We can expose ourselves to different people and different cultures. We can, in short, become more worldly, which in turn makes us more accepting of what others do and how they do it. Some people are afraid of expanding their perspective. Some people are afraid of all that. Some people are fearful it will change them in some fundamental way, that they will lose their identity or maybe just the ideas and beliefs that anchor their lives. They don't want too much information. They know what they know and they're comfortable with it. Which experiencing different people, places, and things certainly has the capacity to do that, to expand your view to introduce you to different ideas and beliefs and maybe even change your fundamental ideas and beliefs. So in a way, I understand that trepidation or fear. It's an irrational fear, make no mistake about it. But I think we're all fundamentally adverse to change. We prefer the known to the unknown, even if it's uncomfortable at times. I will throw this in there too. The more we walk through that fear, the more we experience new things, the greater our appetite is for getting more of them, to experiencing more of them. We get tired of the same old more quickly and even get antsy for change when the status quo lasts too long. In my case, I'm a first-generation American. My first language was German. Thanks to my parents' inclination to take my brother and I to Europe to visit family and see other countries over buying a new car, I developed early on a different view of the U.S. than maybe the average kid. I saw, on one hand, how envious people from other countries were of the life that Americans led, of the conveniences we had, of the comparative opulence we enjoyed. And I'm just talking from a middle-class perspective. The vast majority of Americans, regardless of what you have heard or the fear-mongering that you may be subject to, the vast majority of Americans have been living and are living an incredibly cushy life compared to our counterparts in other countries. I also saw what people from outside the U.S., non-Americans, what they didn't respect about us and our society. They viewed us as supremely arrogant, believing we believing that if it wasn't American, there was something wrong with it. That if you weren't American, you were inferior. And they found this somewhat maddening in light of the fact that the average American appears to be 
less educated, less culturally aware than the average foreigner. Our arrogance, in short, was born of ignorance. Over the course of my life, I visited East Berlin before the wall came down and Hungary while it was still under communist control. I've been to China a half dozen times, as well as Serbia, South Africa, Puerto Rico, Mexico, and of course, Canada. And I'm probably leaving a bunch of others out. France, Italy, you name it. I was near Kosovo when the Twin Towers came down on 9-11. And I'll never forget the reaction of the Serbians I was with. They asked if my family was okay. They expressed empathy, but then said, now you know how it feels. And they were referring to the fact that U.S.-led NATO forces bombed Belgrade and other parts of Serbia in 1999. We as Americans have been in plenty of conflicts but never had been attacked by foreigners on our home soil. So all the things that we have done when we have been fighting and dropping bombs and all of that, it was never here. We as citizens never felt it directly until 9-11. All of which is why I feel fortunate to have been born in this country and am proud to be American. But I'm not blind to our flaws or our history. And feel free to think that we're the greatest country in the world. Just don't think that that's a fact or universal truth or that everybody in the world buys it. It's an opinion and a somewhat slanted one. All of which brings me to Kevin Durant, the Phoenix Suns forward who recently said that he looks forward to Team USA reestablishing its dominance and winning games by 40 or 50 points at the 2024 Olympics in Paris this summer. I told you I'd bring it back to basketball. Or if I didn't, I'm bringing it back to basketball. We got heavy there for a second. But I need the setup. I needed to tell you all of my experience. Why I look at this subject the way I, the way I do. Why KD's words were worth talking about in an episode of this podcast. Rather than just kind of moving on and taking them as they are. I'm not even sure exactly where to begin, but let's start here. The only Olympic team to dominate each and every game it played in basketball is the 1992 Dream Team. That's the only team. They won every game by no less than 32 and by as much as 68. That was over Angola. The 1996 team came close They won by no less than 22 and as much as 63 over China. But by 2000, the 2000 Olympics, we were fighting for our lives. Still winning gold, but escaping the semifinals with a two-point win over Lithuania. And in case you were wondering, Lithuania, total population, 2.8 million. Even the Redeem team. The 2008 squad with Kobe Bryant, Jason Kidd, 23-year-olds and LeBron James and Chris Paul, 24-year-old Carmelo Anthony, 26-year-old Dwayne Wade, like uh, about as close to a dream team of current players as you could get. In fact, all of these players being younger, much younger than the dream teamers were, and yet they were not as dominant as the dream team. The same Angola that the Dream Teamers obliterated by 68 points, 
the redeemed team took down by a modest 21. And in the 2008 final, Team USA won by 11 over Spain in a game that was much closer than the final score would indicate. Spain held a first quarter lead and remained in striking distance the entire way. It was still a four-point game with less than two and a half minutes to go. Four years later, with Spain as the finals opponent again, the contest was even tighter, USA getting away with a 107-100 victory for gold. KD, of course, was a part of the 2012 team that won 107-100, which did stomp Nigeria by 83 and Tunisia by 47. But those were their only wins by 40 points or more. And aside from the final against Spain, they squeaked by Lithuania with a five-point win in group play. KD was also a part of the 2016 team, which squeaked out a pair of three-point wins over Serbia and France in group play and a six-point win over Spain in the semis. Did they all win gold? Sure. Was it easy? No. More often than not, Team USA's depth is what ultimately made the difference. They didn't outplay or out-execute the teams they faced. They simply wore them down. So what does that mean? That means when it came to execution and exploiting international rules in particular, several teams they faced were actually better. They simply didn't have the depth on their rosters to finish the deal. Now, apologies for throwing all those scores and numbers at you, but here's my reason for doing so. KD has faced international competition in an international setting. He has to know how much other countries have improved, how different the international game is, how different the officiating is, and how much more familiar and suited foreign teams are to playing that game. So why would he talk about winning games by 40 and 50 points as if that is something Team USA is capable of doing at its discretion? And don't act like he wasn't saying that. He said he looked forward to doing it. Not that he hoped they could do it or that it should be a goal of theirs to do it. Or even if he said the team they've assembled doing uh, should be able to do it. He said, I look forward to doing it. It's the attitude, quite frankly, of a casual fan. You know the ones, the Twitter slash, the Twitter slash X fools who think if you just put a bunch of superstars, NBA, American superstars out on the floor and give them a ball, they can wipe the floor with any team alive. As if, when was the last time that happened? As if that hasn't been proved over and over again in the NBA and in international competition that it takes a whole lot more than that. That while those days did exist once upon a time, it was for two Olympic cycles a couple of decades ago. This also shouldn't be news to KD, but apparently it is. The best players in the world outside the U.S. are as good or better than our best players. One look at the MVP race tells you that. Nikola Jokic, Luka Doncic, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Giannis Antetokounmpo. And that's playing the NBA game, which is markedly different than the international game, in which there is no question they are superior because they are vastly more experienced at it. And they will tell you, that game 
that game is more difficult for them to dominate. So, with all their experience and how they've showed out in the NBA, and they say, that game's tougher, and KD says, yeah, yeah, we, we NBA, we American NBA players, we, uh, we look forward to taking that, that game by storm. 40, 50, we'll be right back there. We're the next coming of the dream team. And this is what I find crazy. And where I fault my media brethren. I've yet to see anybody push back on those comments. I wasn't there when he said them. But I haven't heard anybody since who has heard them suggest that he's delusional. Which I would say he is. And maybe it's that delusion that empowers him to ask the question, why am I not in the conversation for greatest player of all time? And the answer being, KD, you haven't done enough to put yourself in that conversation. Proving that you are a great scorer, a free-level scorer, and a decent defender when you want to be doesn't put you in that conversation. Accomplishments put you in that conversation. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Two championships, two M- finals MVPs don't put you in that com- conversation. Sustained excellence that translates to winning puts you in that conversation. He has two rings, championship rings, two finals MVPs, one league MVP award, five scoring titles, 10 All-NBA selections. Michael Jordan has six championships, six finals MVP awards, 10 scoring titles, five league MVPs, 10 All-NBA selections, nine All-Defense selections, and a Defensive Player of the Year award. We can get into debates about Jordan versus players who were prolific at, at things other than scoring when it comes to, to the greatest of all time. But if scoring is your calling card, as it is for KD, you're not getting mentioned in the same breath as someone who has twice as many scoring titles. You're, you're out right there without even going further. That's without even getting into all the other things that Jordan has proved himself twice the player KD is at doing. We're going to go, if we don't go to Jordan, we're going to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar next. We might go to Karl Malone before we go to Kevin Durant as far as greatest of all time. And we're not going to Karl Malone anytime soon. This might be my biggest issue with KD's declaration. Winning Olympic Games by 40 or 50 points isn't really going to prove anything. At least 
not as far as our superiority as a basketball nation. The NBA game has lost a lot of its luster, and running up the score against Australia or China or Latvia isn't going to change that or cure it. The NBA is a dumbed-down version of the game, and because all of our young players aspire to play in the NBA, the game is being taught to them in a way that mirrors the dumbed-down version of the NBA game. Players can shoot from greater distances than ever before. The casual fan sees that and says, oh, well, our players today are just so much more talented. They've got mad ball handling skills. Look at, look at what they can do. Bob Cousy dribbled with one hand. All of that nonsense. But the vast majority of U.S. developed players don't have the footwork to score without taking a dribble or create a shot without leaving the floor. It's all histrionics. It's all showboat. It's not a direct line to winning a game. If today's player can't throw a lob to the rim on a fast break, they have no idea how to finish one. It can be 3v1, much less 2v1. And if the lob is not there, if they can't flush it, they don't know how to manipulate that defensive player to get an easy bucket. The Warriors have had to employ cast-off big men, international big men, Zaza Pachulia, Nemanja Bielica, Dario Saric, because most American big men have no capability to be playmakers, to have the offense run through them through the high post. Not because they're big, but because they understand the game, they can see the floor, and they have the requisite ability, timing-wise, to recognize when a teammate's going to come open and put the ball in the right place. The proof of what a concerted, collective, national effort can do to raise the quality of basketball is just north of us. And I dare say we are prepared, or we are ready, we are ripe for an intervention. That uh, nation north of us is Canada, which established a program where youth coaches have to be certified by taking certain courses and passing certain tests. They, have, they now have a uniform way of teaching the game, and it is rooted in the fundamentals. So if you were wondering why suddenly Canada is producing all these great players, it's because when a lot of uh, athletic talent emigrates uh, to, to Canada, but that's now that's been happening that's long happened that's not new what's new is the way they're teaching the game of basketball all the young studs you see in the nba are now a byproduct of that and if you'll notice the common denominator is that they all have solid fundamentals and understanding of the game they can play in multiple ways they can score and defend they're two-way players the lack of basketball IQ among our most highly touted young players, the ones that were anointed in AAU as teenagers, the one and duns in college, is painfully obvious. How is it that Jalen Brunson is an MVP candidate and Anthony Edwards is not? How is Brunson an MVP candidate and Devin Booker is not? Because Brunson understands how to play the game. And for some of you wondering maybe, what exactly does that mean? I wish there was a way for me to explain it to you simply. 
but I don't know that there is. I don't know that it, it would take hours. And it's actually not even explaining it. You have to be able to see it. You have to be able to experience it. You know it when you see it. I was just watching The Voice the other night. And it's, the, it's where they all have their backs. Chance the Rapper and John Legend and Reba McIntyre and Dan and Shay. They all have their backs to the singer. And the singer sings. And you can see them listening. And they are listening not just to the song and not just to the voice. They're listening to hear if that singer knows what they're doing with that song and with that voice. Are they manipulating it? Are they showing a range of skills and ability and inflection? And as soon as they hear it, then they turn around. And if they don't, then they don't. And that's the same thing in watching Anthony Edwards, Devin Booker play. When I watch them play, great talent, amazing talent. I wish they understood how to win games. I wish they understood how to harness, fully harness that talent, not just for themselves, but for the sake of their team. They would be, we would be dominant in, in, in international competition. I mean, Anthony Edwards said it after his experience last summer in the World Cup, how much he learned. It was a eye-opening experience for him. And it's one of the things that I love about Ant is that he clearly wants to learn. He wants to get better. But anybody who wants to suggest that he is anything close to a finished product or, and I mentioned this before, but wants to compare him to Michael Jordan? Are you kidding me? They're not in the same stratosphere in understanding the game. Can we look beyond vertical and scoring average and all that to judge our players? But back to Brunson and Edwards and Booker. Edwards and Booker cannot run a team as well as Brunson can. Brunson doesn't have their size, speed, any of it. He just understands the game. And those of you who believe we still have, unquestionably, the best basketball players in the world, how do you answer that? How is it that Chris Paul and LeBron James, pushing 40, can still slice and dice opponents, NBA opponents, who are in their physical primes? As great as they are, that shouldn't be possible. But, but they can because they know how to exploit dumb players. They know that their opposition, in many cases, their opponent, does not know. And there are more of them, the dumb players that is, in the league than ever. Don't confuse talent with competency. LeBron, the other night against the Wizards, turned the ball over, missed a layup, and then complained to the refs rather than getting back, gave up an easy open three-pointer as a result, came down another time and took an ill-advised three. It was a sloppy finish. He did all this down the stretch against the Wizards, and it forced overtime. But it didn't cost him, and I didn't get, didn't get the sense that it phased him because he knew <laughs> inherently I'm playing against Jordan Poole and Kyle Kuzma. They're the ones who are going to be handling the ball down the stretch. They, no matter what I do, are guaranteed to make more, more boneheaded plays than I ever could. That's a comfort. No matter what I do, they're, they're not going to take advantage of it. They don't know how to exploit it. And that is really at the heart of my issue with what Kevin Durant said. While it smacks of 
unearned arrogance and inexplicable ignorance considering his experience in international play, that's not really anything new for some of today's superstars. But I hate to say it, but nothing will top LeBron James anointing himself the greatest player of all time and pinpointing how and when he achieved that. It, 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 it's breathtaking, the, the arrogance in that. As if Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Russell, any of them would ever, ever have the audacity to say, yeah, you know, when I became the greatest player of, the, uh, of all time, it was, it was right there when I did that. No one would dare say that. They know it's not theirs for the saying. And just to be clear for our, you, my, my pan sports audience, Muhammad Ali, yes, called himself the greatest. I consider him the greatest. But he did it in boxing. He did it as a promotional tool and a psychological one against his opponents. LeBron wasn't doing any of that. Don't try to sell me on that. He was literally telling us, I'm the greatest. Ali... He did it with a twinkle in his eye and a smirk to let us all know it was part of the game. He wasn't taking himself that seriously. LeBron was. Go back and look at the look at the interview or the press conference, whatever it was, that he said it. <laughs> Astonishing. I digress. The problem is that I look to someone like KD to be a steward of the game. More so even than LeBron, to be honest with you. I feel like, and I don't know why, I just get the sense that KD cares about the game on some level. And as Kobe Bryant said, and Stephen Curry has since echoed, the goal for everyone in anything is to leave the game better than it was when, when they started. Uh, it's, I feel that should be the case for all of us in whatever we do, to leave this place better than how we found it. Now, I can talk about how the game has deteriorated. And I will, no matter how many social media terrorists who are incensed by someone suggesting that KD is off his rocker, or that what they're watching isn't the best it's ever been, which raises uncomfortable questions for them about their understanding of what true excellence is. So I understand why they would push back on that. Doesn't make any less true. But KD could be a powerful ally in the cause. To acknowledge that the game not only isn't what it used to be, but it isn't what it could be, would be the first step in truly reestablishing our nation's place at the top of the basketball mountain. As is often said, the first step in solving a problem is admitting that you have one. Let's not turn a blind eye to who is competing for most valuable player in the NBA. And let's begin working on an answer with the players that are coming up now so that it doesn't continue, that trend does not continue in the same direction. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't know if this is going to be the subject for the next episode, but I've been wanting to dive into Steve Kerr and the controversial view of him. There's people who've wanted him fired. People believe he's wildly overrated. And then there are other people, obviously, who recognize him as uh, as a great coach. And 
some people who are confused by how he has handled this particular Golden State Warriors team, particularly when it comes to Jonathan Kaminga and Moses Moody. I may get into all of that and explaining why Steve Kerr is the way he is, why he's done what he's done, and where we should honestly rank him among coaches in the NBA. That may be the subject of the next episode if if something else doesn't come along. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>